0: This is The Illusionist, in which I, Helen Zaltzman, smash a bottle of champagne on language's bow. Today's episode is a tale of epic voyages of scrabbling for survival and fruit loaf. On with the show. It's Friday night. I'm in a church hall in the small town of Gaiman in rural Argentina, around 1200 kilometres south of Buenos Aires, watching a concert in which locals are singing songs in Welsh. Three thoughts are rotating in my mind. One, these people are really good singers. here, people are going to wonder what on earth I was doing in a church hall in a tiny town in Argentina. Three, we are 12,000 kilometres from Wales, and the Welsh language is not widespread. Why are there people speaking Welsh in Argentina? In late May 1865, The Mimosa, a converted tea clipper, set sail from Liverpool, carrying around 155 Welsh passengers bound for Patagonia, the southerly region of South America. Most knew they would never see Wales again. Not all of them survived the voyage, although a couple of babies were born during it.
1: And 155-ish people arrived at Madryn after two months at sea with the idea of forming a community where they would be able to practise their own language uh, their own religion, and they would actually be able to live in in freedom.
0: This is Claire Vaughan, who is the teaching coordinator for the Welsh language project in Chubut Province, the region of Patagonia in which the Welsh settled. The province stretches the width of Argentina, about two thirds of the way down the country. In 2005, Claire went out there to teach Welsh for a year, and she's still there 13 years later. But her big move to Argentina was rather easier than the journey undertaken by the passengers on the Mimosa, who landed at what is now the town of Puerto Madryn on the 28th of July, 1865.
1: Which is mid-winter here, with the freezing wind coming off the, the sea. And I just think, why did they stay in the
0: first place? Puerto Madryn has a big sandy beach and whale-watching tours and a lot of chocolate shops. Now. But not back in 1865. Forget chocolate shops, there weren't even any permanent settlements in the province at the time. It was hard living there. It took the Welsh settlers a while to find fresh water, their sheep ran away, and their crops did not thrive in the dry climate until several years later they irrigated the Chibut River Valley. Did they wait around for the mimosa to pick them up and take them back?
1: But of course for many of them that would have been their life savings that they'd invested in this this trip. And I think how bad must conditions have been in Wales for them to actually give it all up in the first place and consider a two-month voyage to the unknown.
0: And by many accounts, conditions in Wales were pretty bad in the mid-19th century.
1: In Wales, the situation was very, very complicated and a, a lot of people were living uh, tied to the, the other people's land. They didn't have their own land. And if you didn't go to the Anglican church, you went to the chapels, you were, you were second class and so on. So there were lots of things. And also these attitudes towards the, the language.
0: The Welsh language, which is one of the oldest languages in Europe, had been struggling against the encroachment of English for hundreds of years. In the 13th century, Wales had been annexed by the English king Edward I, and Welsh power was further depleted in the 1530s, when King Henry VIII passed various acts decreeing that Wales would be ruled by the English Parliament. Anyone using the Welsh language could not serve in public office, and the only language that could be used in the courts of Wales was to be English. Now, one thing that contributes to the decline of a language is when another language is the language of power. So, if you want to get ahead, or at least not be disadvantaged, you tend to ditch the minority language. Add to that the demographic shifts in the 19th century, as a lot of English people had moved into Wales following the Industrial Revolution, and although in the middle of the 19th century at least 75% of the population of Wales still spoke Welsh, there were measures to repress the language in schools.
1: In Wales, during the the 19th century, we had a a terrible thing that happened with the schools, which was Brāda Llavraigleisj on the Blue Books.
0: The treason of the Blue Books, as it came to be known, was a parliamentary report from 1847 into the state of education and morals in Wales. It was scathing about the Welsh language, calling it, I quote, a vast drawback to Wales and a manifold barrier to the moral progress and commercial prosperity of the people it is not easy to overestimate its evil effects. Note that the commissioners who had visited Welsh schools to assess them for the report couldn't speak Welsh.
1: The English inspectors went into schools and found that the children couldn't answer their questions, and so, you know, learning Welsh made you an idiot, and so you had to learn English. Uh, And that was, you know, just typical of its Mm. time. (laughs) But there was a horrible thing called the Welsh Mm. knot, you know, where you were punished for speaking
0: Welsh. The Welsh knot was a plaque or stick that you had to carry around at school if you were caught speaking Welsh. When another child spoke Welsh, you would hand on the Welsh knot to them, and whoever was still holding the Welsh knot at the end of lessons received a punishment. This wasn't an official government policy, but it was quite widespread in schools in Wales in the second half of the 19th century, and possibly even into the 20th the Welsh language was under attack.
1: And so there was a movement led by Michael D. Jones and um, other people who invested their own money to see this, this get off the ground.
0: Michael D. Jones was a nonconformist preacher and staunch nationalist, and he was one of the people spearheading the idea that Welsh people should form a colony somewhere that the language and culture would be left alone. Welsh people had migrated and tried to form communities in countries including Canada and the USA, But when Michael D. Jones spent a couple of years preaching in Cincinnati, Ohio, he was displeased to find that these Welsh migrants were speaking English to try to assimilate into their new environs and to get jobs.
1: Instead of being able to keep the language, the language very soon disappeared and English became the common language. So they felt that by coming here to Patagonia... They would be on their own, and that was absolutely what happened. No
0: one's going to bother them there
1: well absolutely it was it was far enough away geographically for them not to be bothered, and they knew that there weren't other communities there like in North America. There was a pamphlet written by a person called Hugh Hughes, and he described the the climate the agreeable climate in Patagonia. Well, it was obvious that he'd never been here. <laughs>
0: Hugh Hughes's 1862 pamphlet makes an impassioned case for the Welsh escaping English dominance by migrating to Patagonia. But a lot of the references he quoted about the glorious lands that awaited them there, well, he made them up. One selling point for going to Patagonia was that the Argentine government had come to an agreement with Michael D. Jones to let the Welsh have some land.
1: Because of the, the deals with the, the government and the fact that they, they kind of offered them the, the land with very few ties you know because the Argentine government let's be honest they wanted to populate Patagonia because at that time everything south of um, Buenos Aires, south of the Rio Colorado was Patagonia and it hadn't been defined who it belonged to and so by actually getting people in there who were going to call themselves Argentine citizens raising the Argentinian flag they were going to put their, their claim on the on the land. So the Welsh, in a way, were a kind of uh, an unwitting pawn in that. I don't think they realised the, the extent of the government's
0: intentions. The government's intentions being to tell Chile to suck it. It's Argentina's Patagonia now. Get back on your side of the Andes. At the time, there wasn't much interest from other parties in Patagonia. The Spanish and English, who had settled elsewhere in Argentina weren't as keen on the remote, arid Chibut province. The indigenous Tewelche had been living nomadically on that land for 15,000 years, but apparently they were very welcoming and helpful to the new Welsh arrivals, teaching them how to hunt and live in that climate. Possibly the friendship was sweetened by the Argentine government paying the indigenous peoples not to attack settlers. For 50 years after the Mimosa first landed, there were a few more influxes of Welsh immigrants, and as well as their cluster of communities in the lower Chibut valley near the Atlantic coast, they formed another handful of towns 700 kilometres away in the Andes. In between, not much. In total, around 2,300 people made the journey from Wales. And even after they reproduced, Chibut wasn't exactly overcrowded.
1: And so the isolation carried on until, you know, well into the 20th century... And so uh, Welsh was the language. And you hear stories about some of the um, indigenous people who worked on the Welsh farms, they would learn Welsh because that was the language that they, they heard. People who are now in their 80s were quite possibly born and bred speaking Welsh. And so their, their communities were Welsh. They would marry people who spoke Welsh. And so it's incredible that, uh, you know, during all that time, the, the language has been kept in South America.
0: And Welsh culture, too. Walking around the town of Gaiman, Welsh music ringing from the church hall, you'll see plenty of Welsh dragons on signs and flags. Pop into a tea house for a glorious spread of brith and Welsh cakes, and the walls might be covered with Welsh love spoons, dolls in traditional Welsh costume, and tea towels depicting Welsh castles. Oh my god, that's the exact same tea towel I've got from Harlech Castle! And in the street names that commemorate some of the settlers, you see a singular combination of Welsh and Spanish.
2: In Gaiman we have... A street that is Miguel Jones uh, is after Michael D. Jones. It's an important street, no? And there is other that the street that crosses the river, the, the, the street of the bridge is Juan C. Evans. In English would be John C. Evans, and the library, the popular library here in Gaiman is Ricardo J. Berwin. Ricardo is Richard. He was Richard Jones Berwin. J is J. eh? Ricardo J Berwin.
0: This is Fabio Gonzalez, who runs the museum full of Welsh Patagonian artefacts in Gaiman's former station house. He pointed out old charts of the Lower Chibut Valley that showed how the land was divided up between people with names like Guillermo Lloyd, Juan Enrique Jones, Roberto Roberts, Spanish in the front, Welsh in the back.
2: The, The surname in Argentina, they kept the surnames. in but they translate the first names. Argentina, at some point, I don't know when exactly, passed a law that would make compulsory to use first names in a way that was readable in Spanish. So you can use the name David, David in English, because it's the same, you pronounce it David. Richard would be Ricardo in Spanish, Here in Chubut, they were still using the first name, but like officially in, for example, there is a man that uh, is well known, Lewis Jones. In many Buenos Aires government records, it would appear, Luis Jones.
0: Lewis Jones was one of the instigators of the Welsh settlement in Patagonia. L-E-W-I-S in Welsh, L-U-I-S in Spanish. Given the distance between Wales and Patagonia and the different cultures and influences in each place, how much have their versions of Welsh diverged?
1: The teacher we have in the Andes now has been here three weeks. And he said, you know, sometimes he forgets he's in South America because he's surrounded by people who speak Welsh. (laughs) It's only when he realises that their accent is more Spanish. It has a little Spanish tinge to it. Uh, In English and in Welsh, we have very hard consonants. And here, maybe with the Spanish influence, they're not quite so clear. You know, they're a little bit more fuzzy. But um, people like to think that the Welsh here is kind of preserved in aspic from the 1860s. I wouldn't say that that is the case, but what is interesting is that, you know, certain words that they use here are in English. And some of the older ladies, you know, you will have an argument with them about the word for peaches. In Welsh now, we say Aedin glanog, <laughs> but they will say peaches. And, of course, that's what their parents brought with them from Wales, because at that time the influence of, of English and the education in English was was so great that there are lots of words that... They wouldn't realise, uh, you know, our our English. Um, also, things like the sentence structure sometimes comes out a little bit like the Spanish in the in the order of things. And they translate like we do in Welsh. We're terrible for translating literally from English. So here, instead of saying "deuch which means "come in," they will say paschuch and "pasuch" is from the Spanish "pasear," which is to come in to, to pass through the door. Which we would never say it in Wales, you know? So there are those kind of things which are absolutely unique and very quirky and very
2: picturesque.
0: And there are some phonetic challenges.
2: The problem is with the sh- sh-
0: That's how you pronounce the double L that you see in Welsh words.
2: Like in Shanechi, they could not pronounce Shanechi, they just say Lanelli or whatever. I know that they cannot pronounce it.
0: In the first half of the 20th century, the Welsh language was on the decline in both Wales and Chabut. In the 1911 census, less than half of the population of Wales reported being able to speak it, and that proportion shrank further over the next few decades. Welsh wasn't being taught in schools, and English had asserted itself as the language of business and authority, and the hundreds of years of stigmatisation of the Welsh language had left deep scars. Meanwhile, in Patagonia, the Welsh communities weren't thriving either. Around the turn of the 20th century, devastating floods in the Lower Chibut Valley sent hundreds back to Britain, or to try their luck in Canada or Australia. In 1911, the last shipload of Welsh immigrants arrived in Chibut. After that, the Welsh connection weakened. Particularly as other people, mostly immigrants from mainland European countries, were now moving to the region that the Welsh settlers and their descendants had had almost to themselves for 50 years. Having largely left them alone for that time, the Argentinian government now asserted direct rule over Chubut and decreed that Spanish should be the official language so Welsh could no longer be taught in schools. And as an ever smaller proportion of the population of Patagonia was of Welsh descent, Welsh was being used less in the home. The language began to dwindle.
3: It is very sad, really, very sad, because sometimes people stopped speaking Welsh to their children because of the pressure of of a school no, that said, no, you, you have to speak Spanish. I know even the cases where children were not promoted from one class to the other because of their Welsh accent. Intelligent children, I'm saying now, I tell you, things like that happen. I'm in the pub in Gaiman with
0: Lynette Gonzalez, who is the great granddaughter of Michael D. Jones, the settlements orchestrator, and she also happens to be the mother of Fabio from the museum. And she's part of a scheme to revive Welsh in Chubut.
3: My name is Lyned Bajan-Roberts de, de González. I'm a retired teacher. Uh, I was headmistress of a, s- a small secondary school in Gaiman, Chubut. And um, um, in the 1990s, A project to help the survival of the Welsh language was launched by the Welsh government, so they asked me to be a sort of coordinator, and I've been uh, helping the project since 1997. What did the project involve? The project involved um, sending three teachers, sometimes four, every year to teach Welsh in the community, here in the Chubut Valley, lower Chubut Valley.
0: What kind of state was Welsh in 20 years ago? Why were they so worried about it?
3: Well, uh, all the teaching in the schools was through Spanish, of course, And um, there were more people who were, shall we call them, native speakers, those who had learned Welsh at home. But the young generation wasn't speaking much Welsh, and we, we all wanted the survival of the language. Because if you think back to 1865, when the Welsh settled here in the Lower Chubut Valley, the language of the community wasn't Spanish, it was Welsh. Uh, even Indians learned Welsh to communicate because uh, sometimes uh, um, families, uh, Indian families left a child with a Welsh family so that they could go to school. So he naturally spoke Welsh. So Welsh, for quite a number of years, was a language of the community. Slowly, of course, once the the valley was developed, people from other parts, from Argentina, from Spain, from everywhere, came, and uh, Welsh descendants became a minority. But one is surprised, thinking how long the language has survived.
0: The survival of Welsh took a concerted effort, In Wales in the 20th century, there was a diligent movement to keep the language alive. The Welsh Language Act of 1967 enshrined the right to use Welsh in law and governance, and as the 20th century drew on, there were bilingual road signs. A dedicated Welsh language TV station and radio station started up, and Welsh language classes became compulsory in schools. And at long last, in 2012, an act was passed into law to confirm Welsh as an official language in Wales. Still only around 20% of the population of Wales speaks Welsh, but the decline has been halted and numbers are slowly increasing. In Patagonia, there are around 50,000 descendants of Welsh settlers now, and an estimated 7,000 of them speak Welsh. Around 1,200 are currently taking Welsh classes. But to prevent a language from becoming extinct, it needs not to be preserved like a historic artefact, but to be useful for modern-day speakers. If you're a modern-day speaker in Argentina, how can Welsh be useful?
1: right well that's, that's a very good question because um, what we've seen is a great interest in learning Welsh and by the time the children finish primary school they can have a, a conversation with somebody who comes from Wales about you know everyday life and, and their hopes and dreams and but what do you do after that? How do you move to make that language a language of communication and that is the big question um we've seen the project bring fruit forth uh in the speakers in the people who've learned and they're passing the language on but how do you ever make it a community language again
0: in the case of um, patagonia why bother learning welsh if you can communicate in spanish
3: well because we're stubborn <laughs> but uh yeah, it's uh, Fantastic to be able to communicate in in different languages. You enrich your life, you know, when you speak another language. And uh, Welsh has such a richness of of poetry and uh, songs with beautiful uh, uh, lyrics.
0: Why is it important to you that Welsh is preserved here?
2: Well, because it's part of our... History of our heritage it's just, for me it's natural now, and I have learned more, so it, it's more it's more part of me and I can understand the 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 some of the songs in Welsh now, the rock songs <laughs> and I like that
1: <laughs> The two things are are keeping the cultural heritage because because not because it's got some instrumental value to anybody but because of the emotional value, the social value.
0: How did you learn Welsh?
3: Well, I, I just, uh, when I learned to speak, I, <laughs> my parents spoke Welsh, so everybody spoke Welsh at home. And we uh, spoke Spanish with our friends, and then in my teens I studied English. But I, I feel very happy that my parents spoke Welsh to me. It, it's a privilege, really. I, didn't have, I made no effort to learn Welsh. I just learned it. I was so lucky. Imagine these young... Especially when you start in your teens or in your 20s learning the language, you have to struggle a lot.
0: Do you think different thoughts in the three different languages?
3: Well, you are asking difficult questions now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know that when I it, 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 in different contexts you prefer one language to the other. And Spanish is uh, I did all my schooling through Spanish, of course. and Spanish is a very rich language. and I spoke Spanish in the at home because my husband was Argentine of no Welsh descent, you see, if it is him singing, I prefer to sing in Welsh when it is him singing. When I want to read a thriller, I prefer English. (laughs) I'll tell you, I'm quite a fan. (laughs) I confess.
0: randomly selected word from the dictionary today, is dromos, noun, an avenue or passage leading into an ancient Greek temple or tomb. Try using it in an email today. This episode of The Illusionist was produced by Martin Austwick and me, Helen Zaltzman. You heard from Lyned and Fabio Gonzalez in the town of Guyman in the Lower Chibut Valley, and from Claire Vaughan from the Welsh Language Project speaking to me from up in the Andes thanks to Lindsay Halliday, Sean James, and Walter Brooks from the British Council in Cardiff. Benjamin Partridge provided editorial help, listened to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast, which is one of my favorites, very funny. And he's also just released the new comedy show, Ray Moss, No Stone Unturned, which you can find on the BBC's podcast feed called Kinch. I really loved the trip to Patagonia, As well as visiting the Welsh towns in the Lower Chibut Valley, I travelled further south to see some spectacular mountains and glaciers, so if you want Patagonia travel tips, I'm good for them. I'll post pictures of the Welsh things in Gaiman and Puerto Madryn on the Illusionist website, where you can also find every episode, plus a lot of additional information about each one, and transcripts. There are links to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All this is at theillusionist.org.